Hello and welcome to Sunset Crypto. We've been on a little bit of a hiatus, but we are back in the booth. It feels good. It's spring. Good things are happening in crypto for a change, which is nice. People's portfolios are looking better. Spring has sprung, baby. Yeah, and and uh, and yeah, we got some crypto stuff because uh, for once in our in our lives, it seems like things are turning up. Sunrise for crypto, sunset for this podcast. Let's get it going. That was the most privileged thing I've ever said, by the way. For once in our lives, things are turning up. Like, that's yeah, just yeah, a yeah. We've we, we've really we've really struggled. Off in, to a bad start. We've really yeah. struggled in our in our upbringing. You know, in a in in a white collar suburbs of major yeah, good and U.S. cities. Good Jewish boys. Okay, good so, Jewish boys. So we got a couple of things that we need to talk about before we uh, bring this week's guest on. Um, and by the way, we're super excited. Sorry, on Crip Will no, about ahead. stepping on that, but we're super excited about our guest. Uh, I call him Boy Wonder. He is, uh, you know, at at a at a relatively young age, he's already sold blockchain solutions to major companies. He's built things that are uh, being used in the crypto world today, and is going to talk to us about what he's up to in the crypto world. His name is Ritesh Tapa, and uh, he's going to be uh, he's going to be joining us for the second half of the podcast. But before we get there. Uncrypt Will, please go for it. What do we got going on today? So we need to talk about what's been, what's been, according to certain people, if you listen to them, driving up the price of lots of coins, and that is this idea of smart money in crypto. That you and I, because we're you know we're dumb money, uh, we're retail. The, the, this idea that now that big banks and institutional investors, uh, well-known activists, are waking up to crypto, that that is something that is that is producing this upward pressure on crypto. Uh, I, for one, am a believer in that that is at least somewhat true. But I also think that uh, crypto touts pointing to smart money as saying, you know, this is proof that crypto is going to work. No, that's proof that there is a profit opportunity. That's all that is. There's proof that you can make money from this. You can't be someone who... Uh, believes in like a maximalist future, or not even a maximalist future, but a, a utilitarian future of crypto, and simultaneously is saying, "Well, look, Goldman Sachs is opening a trading desk, and they're going to make a bunch of money from it." You know what I'm saying? Like, am I crazy for thinking that? That you, you're kind of trying to have it both ways there? It's not crazy, and I will tell you why it's not crazy. But before I tell you why it's not crazy, let let's first define what we mean specifically by smart money. Let's define terms because are we talking about smart money, Wall Street smart money or smart money, crypto smart money, which is non-Wall Street, but you know OGs that have been around since 2011 and have been in the game for seven years and are quote unquote crypto whales or both? I mean, I think we're talking about both because I, I think that anything that's a brand whether that's a person, a company, a fund, whatever, mm-hmm. like people, when they use this idea of, you know, the, oh, the smart money is going into crypto, like buy now. When they're using that as a as a, a FOMO tactic, which is like the, you know, the sister of FUD, uh, what, they're, what they're basically doing is, is just kind of co-opting that person's brand and saying, this is why you should buy crypto. So I think it's a loose definition rather than like something we can, you know, hammer out or carve in stone. So the first thing I want to say about that is smart money is by definition unemotional money. So Wall Street, by saying Wall Street's getting involved, Goldman Sachs is um, is investing in a company that is a trading desk, doing, you know, the Wall Street coming online and trying to do security tokens. There was news about NASDAQ announcing that they were interested in doing a securities exchange. Yes, like quote-unquote, smart money is coming in. And the thought that that means crypto is going to work is so off base because you're right. Smart money coming in means there there is an institutional opinion that there's money to be made here. Now, guess what? That might mean that there's money to be made on the rubes. Yeah. Right? And you might be that rube. Yeah, <laughs> because guess what? If you try to dance with the smart money, you probably aren't the smart money. I mean, that, that's the thing. It's like, I don't think you can, I, I don't think one could even say, you know what, I'm just going to hitch my fortunes to Warren Buffett and I'm going to be fine. Like, yeah, all right, if you own some Berkshire Hathaway stock, like you're probably going to do well, but sure. that's that's not the same thing. It's not, the, it's not the same thing at all. Like owning a share of Amazon does not mean that you are now 
tying yourself to the fortunes of Jeff Bezos. Like th- these are, <laughs> these are people who have in different information than you and, and a different portfolio and a different capacity and different resources than you. So that, and, I mean, that's my, that's my skepticism. And they don't necessarily believe in the decentralized future. No, they don't necessarily believe in that there should be an alternate to today's finance world. They don't necessarily believe that, you know, you're not getting somebody that's saying, I'm going to go long on the future of crypto. You're going to, you're saying, I'm going to, this, these are people or these are organizations that are making money today. Now, we're not saying that you're necessarily or that the retail crypto person is necessarily being played. But in fact, there are other people. I'm, here, you know what? I'm going to bring up an example. Howard Linzon, who was the founder of StockTwits. Will, have you ever used StockTwits or been uh, on StockTwits? I, I cannot say that I have. Uh, okay, well... To, bad, bad pod, sorry. Bad pod. But without... Uh, I'll give a little bit of color on it. It's basically like if you hit like, you know, if you search Twitter, like dollar sign stock ticker, like you'll get like Twitter for that stock. That's and you, stock twits? Well, stock twits itself is like a website, right? Okay. That, okay. that aggregates tweets about a particular stock. And I know I use it because I, um, for stock trading... And doing um, fundamental analysis, I usually start on finviz.com, which has a stock twits plugin on the side of your page. So if you're looking at, uh, to you to, go, to continue the example, like you're looking at finviz.com and doing fundamentals on Amazon, you'll see on the right of your screen a scrolling tweet, like scrolling tweets of like real-time tweets about Amazon. And like, Okay, crypto Twitter's worse than stock tweets, <laughs> but stock tweets is by stock tweets is by no means great. What um what Howard Linzon, the co-founder of Stock Twits, who's now uh super into crypto, he'll ad- he'll admit that his investing strategy is being the pilot fish, which is like he finds the what the whales are doing and like the same way if you've watched Blue Planet, the way that yeah. Uh, pilot fish. Yeah, or, yeah, 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 exactly. So like he calls the pilot fish strategy and it's like he will do what the whales do. You'll probably be fine. Yeah, you're in the slipstream. Right. But, you know, I would say that crypto OGs in terms of smart money are different because they are genuinely interested in the survivability of a crypto future. They've already sort of rejected like the traditional investment struck um, opportunities that are afforded to people. So I'll, I, I'm going to actually transition the discussion to uh, about smart money and crypto to a point I want to make about how smart money actually plays in crypto. And this is where I would actually put crypto OGs and um, Wall Street types into the same boat here. Um, from the perspective of a, um, of a startup or a company that is in crypto and trying to raise money, I think that there's a, actually a bit of a pushback now from younger companies that are definitely want that whale money, definitely want that smart institutional money that are that are going to come in and fund them and be and they 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 can kind of use it as a calling card like oh these big guys invested in our company, but guess what when you have smart money again quote unquote uh, giving you most of your funding. They're interested in a quick profit and they're going to hold, they're going to hodl until they get that profit and then they can dump. But it's a catch-22 because you actually need your token to circulate in order to uh, not necessarily show that it works. but But if people are using your token, then your product is working, then you're worth something. But if you're taking so much institutional money, they're going to sit on most of your on most of that crypto and wait for it to pump and they're going to just kind of uh, dump it via market makers and it's going to put a lot of downward pressure on your token price. So I'm now rambling but I'm and I'll kick it over to you to get your thoughts on this but I'm actually seeing a lot of the better highly prospective ICOs seeking funding in the crypto space tinkering with smart money and whale money versus um, twenty thousand and below. Yeah, because they want like let's like let's say an ideal ratio. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying like hypothetically, an ideal ratio might be let's 
have 80% of our pre-sale be to whales mm-hmm. and 20% be to regular crypto people because we do want to see about a fifth of our tokens actually circulating on exchanges and and doing and doing something. Sure. And and who's got experience investing in that kind of funding activity? It's whales, it's smart money. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily retail investors because you have to be an accredited investor if you want to invest in traditional asset classes. Sure. We're getting way too technical and and I think way too financial, but one of the smart money entrants is something that is recently is something that is very near and dear to me and that is Amazon. Okay. And and Amazon had or you know made some big waves particularly among uh, Ethereum stands because they announced that um, well for they they announced something with Ethereum which I'll get to in just a minute. For those that that don't know and I'm I'm always surprised by how many people actually don't know this, Amazon is actually the world's biggest cloud computing company. They pretty much invented the idea of the public cloud where you can rent and consume uh, infrastructure as a service, internet resources, you know, pay on demand, pay as you go, that whole model out of the the excess um, computing capacity that Amazon.com had on hand. So they started renting it out to companies, and that's basically how the public cloud market as we know it today was born. Uh, their lead on competitors like Microsoft and Google is, I mean, it's it's so significant that words really won't do it justice. They are far and away the number one player in the market. And one of the things that they did this week, um, and Amazon is an incredibly innovative company. Um, they're an incredibly aggressive company when it comes to technology development and capturing market share. One of the things they did was they made it easier for people using Amazon Web Services, which is the cloud arm of their business, to uh, automate and and provision um, Ethereum resources on their cloud. So if you're an Ethereum company, if you're an Ethereum developer, and uh, you're thinking about like, where am I going to host my Ethereum product? I mean, Ethereum is all about decentralized apps. Amazon becomes the no-brainer because it's automated, it's faster, it's templatized for you, it's ready to go out of the box. There's so much less infrastructure configuration that you have to do. And as a as a cloud guy, as a cloud guy, you know this is this is what I'm dealing with every day. This was sort of hailed by the Ethereum community as this big win for Ethereum and for crypto. And yeah, you know, it is that. I'm sorry to be the wet blanket today, but, you know, every time every time there's a downswing, I feel like I need to lift everybody up. And every time there's an upswing, I feel like I need to, you know, like cool people off. You're a contrarian. Exactly. I'm very much a contrarian. What a rough upbringing. Stuff. Yeah, I, yeah. Very rough upbringing in, in suburban uh, Boston. So, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because this is such a great segue to our guest who is an Ethereum developer yeah. and who would weigh in as somebody that would... Uh, it was familiar with AWS, Amazon Web Services, and what it means. But let me ask you this as a cloud guy, right? There's, um, there are, there's a Amazon mm-hmm. who has cloud solutions. Yep. There's Google that has cloud solutions. And they're, of both companies, we've seen in crypto news recently, first there's uh, rumblings of what Google is up to using blockchain yep, and storing your data in their cloud. Basically, it's been described to me as like breaking up your data into like infinity little pieces, like just sharding it off and like, right. and then using a blockchain to, that only you have the keys to. And can we just clarify that, that wh- what you're talking about is like shards, like, like breaking up glass, not, you know, when you have indigestion and have problems and need to change your pants, or Ethereum sharding, or any right. of the ab- yes, that's thing. that's the sharding that we sharding with a D that we're talking about. I'm so, yes, sharding with a D. This is this is real high level pod. Im- yeah, important important clarification. <laughs> uh, so that's that's the Google approach, and then we saw this week news that Amazon has filed for some patents that expressly use the word Bitcoin. Yeah. And it, while it did not seem necessarily cloud related, it did seem kind of like I don't know, I don't know what we're looking for here is not not um, nefarious but like sneaky. Yeah. Well, they're covering their bases. I mean that that's what Amazon does. I mean I, I, all of these companies, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, that compete in the enterprise public cloud market. What, they're, what they care about is market share, first and foremost. I see it 
firsthand, day in, day out. These companies will kill each other to win customers to their side. Amazon, for example, uh, it, you know, they'll they'll fund certain programs, they'll establish certain practices all around different industries. Microsoft will do the same thing. Google is a little less mature, but is developing that. The difference for Amazon is that all they have is Amazon Web Services. That's really the only enterprise technology product that they offer. Whereas Microsoft, you've got Outlook and OneDrive and all the and Excel and all of those productivity tools that are wrapped into something called Office 365 or Microsoft Office. Google has Gmail, Google Drive, Google Calendar that make up G Suite. So sure. the, the point is Amazon has much more invested in its public cloud business at the infrastructure level than do the other big players in the market. So Amazon doing this to me, it's about hedging their bets, protecting their investment. And look, there there may very well be people within Amazon who say blockchain is real, blockchain is the future. But this to me is about protecting that cloud revenue. There is so much knowledge you have in industry expertise being an enterprise cloud guy and also so much knowledge and expertise you have being a crypto and blockchain content machine so <laughs> i hate to do this to you but i also love to do this to you gun to your head what's it going to take for a major enterprise cloud provider to be successful in the blockchain world that's a good question uh i mean i think unfortunately part of it is just branding you know i think part of it is like whichever company can best establish themselves as like the go-to, you know, name associated with blockchain developers. Um, and then I think it's really about uh, ease of use and, and, and making the technology usable for top talent. But what, what's, the, what's like the killer app of blockchain? What's the killer use case for blockchain and cloud? I mean, the killer use, uh, use case for blockchain and cloud right now is exchanges. Um, I, you know, I, I wish it were something more sophisticated than that. But, but I mean, the fact of the matter is, that is the number one use case right now for blockchain companies is, you know, decentralized exchanges and, and what have you. I mean, that, that's the, the easiest proven out use case where there's money to be made for the companies that are building those apps. I'm so glad that you brought up sharding earlier because this has been our most high-minded <laughs> pod to date so far. So I'm glad we got to yeah. throw in like a little bit of toilet humor in there. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I appreciate you kind of taking a hard, you know, a, a fastball just threw at you and knocking no. it out of the park. I'm all for, I mean, look, I wouldn't be any good at this cloud game if I, if I wasn't ready for fastballs. You know? I, I spent about half an hour today, uh, shit talking various blockchain art startups shard are. talking <laughs> uh but uh, you know your background is enterpri enterprise cloud mine is invest investable art and uh, there are lots of uh, little like art startups starting yeah. le left and right and every art company is figuring out their blockchain application and there has to date uh outside of basic database cataloging uh provenance there has been no killer use case yeah. and um i just I can't help but uh, shit talk every project out there. So yeah. If, so if you're listening, uh, Myasinus, Codex, uh, anyone, give us a call. Come on the come on the <laughs> podcast and tell me how wrong I am. Yeah. Open invitation. And let me let me just amend. I don't think exchanges are a killer app. You know, mm -hmm. and I I think the point is like what Alex said. Alex Mashinsky said when he came on our pod is still true. Like we're still looking for that killer app. So it doesn't matter right now what it is for the cloud. It's you know, it's an infrastructure decision on top of like a creative decision to build the right kind of company. Did we give Alex enough props when he was on for being one of the inventors or creators of the Voice? voiceover IP? Um, How cool is that? It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I mean, it's still a technology in use today. So, Kudos yeah. to him for, uh, for launching a blockchain company that is doing lending and not just figuring out, just like wedging a blockchain use case into VoIP. Uh, anyway, we're going to, instead of soliciting new guests and talking about old guests, let's transition into our current guest. R Rakesh Tapa is up next. Rakesh, how you doing? I'm doing good, guys. Awesome. Uh, we introduced you earlier, but we'll recap the introduction. Uh, Rakesh, you are the CEO of BitOverflow, a partner in Coinverse, and currently the chief technical officer and co-founder of a company I'm pretty familiar with, Block Party. Does all of that fit on your business card? 
have to yeah separate them it's uh, it's weird it looks weird on twitter so i'm like trying to figure out how to not mention any of it i, I don't know because you know for marketing purposes oh yeah R- rakesh air quotes i do twitter i do crypto tapa <laughs> I, I love that <laughs> rakesh and i were actually in a nightclub together and without going into too much detail uh he we were both finding it very interesting to see how approaching women with your opening line being, hey, I do crypto, how that would work. And um, mixed results. Mixed results for cash. Oh, oh really? That, that didn't just, you know, <laughs> that you didn't get lots of phone numbers from that? Uh, <laughs> I, I did not. <laughs> I, I didn't. I just got, uh, what is that, Bitcoin? <laughs> uh, so actually, we were, uh, while well, Will and I were kind of talking about cloud and technology, uh, let's just start right there. Uh, we were talking about Amazon Web Services and um, Ethereum developers being excited about that, and now in studio we have a real life Ethereum developer, not on Ether, but like you, you do develop on the Ethereum platform. And uh, what do you, what do you think? Uh, what do you think about Amazon Web Services and cloud for blockchain? Right. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely very excited about the announcement that uh, AWS Amazon made, and obviously with them joining into the into the into the whole crowd and blockchain space. It would be awesome to see what developments get made. Um, but, you know, as I was talking to you guys earlier, I just don't see a, you know, a scenario where there's a blockchain company that takes over cloud services or replaces yeah. cloud services. You know, it's going to go hand in hand and cloud services is going to be a service provider for a lot of blockchain applications. And um, that's the extent of it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because a, a blockchain company, I mean, I don't know how you could ever hope to move like fast enough, right. you know, to, to, com- to compete with something like Amazon Web Services. Amazon has like this elastic capability called auto scaling. I don't want to get too technical because I literally just came from work and this is what I do all day. But auto scaling is like, okay, if a million people hit my app at the same time, we provision more computing power automatically to scale up. Like transaction times for just about any blockchain are not going to be fast enough to do that. Right, I mean, exactly. that, that's fair to say. So, and, and, and AWS is just a behemoth. It's, it's yeah. huge. It's, yeah, it, exactly. no one like they, they call it the uh, I don't know the, I forget what what mythical creature it is. There's you know the Greek one which is mostly underwater. You just see its heads because no one really knows the extent of AWS. They just maybe, kraken, maybe the kraken. I don't know Nessie. Do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, listen, let, let's um, let's actually start from the beginning with how you got involved in blockchain. How you got involved with um, development and some of the first blockchain applications that you built that brought you to where you are today. Right, yeah. Um, I Well, I got into the blockchain space when I was in college, uh, so not too long ago. Maybe. Shout out to the University of Rochester. Yeah. Wait, you <laughs> were in college not too long ago? Yeah, I graduated 2015. Oh my fucking God. <laughs> Fuck, keep going. Keep so, going. so, I mean, when I was there, you know, all that news, I was, I'm a developer, computer science. So, yep. um, I, you know, was always excited reading Reddit and all that kind of stuff. So I actually read the first white paper, you know, the Bitcoin white paper that came out and, um, you know, I've been following along with blockchain, you know, all the developments that were going on, obviously had no money, so couldn't really do anything. <laughs> I, I bought some Bitcoin, uh, but then realized I actually needed that $50 that I spent on it. So I cashed it out right away. <laughs> so, so you had no money. So you're like, you know what? I'm just going to make some money. <laughs> yeah. So basically, you know, things just kept going on. You know, it was, it was always in the back of my mind. I was mostly into just full stack development, application development, joined a startup, Bluefin Energy Finance, great startup, uh, still, you know, going strong in San Diego. But that's where I got introduced into like the energy markets. It was a clean energy financing company. Uh, but there I saw a lot of friction that was in the in the marketplace. You know, there's no scalability and all that kind of stuff. So when I was um, well, actually there, I met our VP of uh, tech at, at Block Party, uh, Eduardo Cordes. Uh, we'll probably, you know, he was, we'll probably do a podcast. With I hear you guys <laughs> hire like really, really like the best VPs in the business. <laughs> Are you hiring any more VPs? <laughs> Always. Cool. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop playing coy uh, this far into uh, the Sunset Crypto podcast. And I don't mean to step on your biography, Rakesh. We'll go right back to it. But um, I am I'm actually the vi- a vice president at Block Party, and 
um, head of business development. I've been busy with that pretty much since we started doing the podcast, but we've been uh, a top secret operation at Block Party until now. So uh, that's I'm just gonna stop 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 uh, lobbing up little like cute things about Block Party. Yeah, there's your little crypto crypto news bomb, the big yeah. reveal. I've now I've now come out via podcast. I am I'm so 2018. Rakesh and I are here to support you. <laughs> Rakesh, please continue about San Diego and where you met the vice president of blockchain development. Right. So Eduardo and I, that was you know pretty. I'll, maybe I'll tell you guys a story some other time. But basically, I end up getting kicked out of my Airbnb in in San Diego. Ended up crashing with. Uh, Eduardo in in his like small dorm room in in San Diego State. So he's still a college student. I was my first year out of college, and we realized we didn't do too many things. Like we drank. That <laughs> yeah. was it. That was that was the one thing. Yeah, that yeah, was the okay. one thing. And, and then we didn't have a PlayStation, so we didn't even do that. Oh man, you're not <laughs> even doing two things. Yeah, it was, that was it. Just so we, one. <laughs> <laughs> one day we were like, yeah, we should probably do some stuff beyond just drink and, yep. and just like party i guess and uh yeah we i mean blockchain was i was already in this space like reading about it and uh eduardo was also interested he started doing he was really coding more hardware uh arduinos and all that kind of stuff he was you know tech guy all the whole time uh mechanical engineer and we we just went head head first into the blockchain space we actually not really blockchain i guess blockchain we did we started building miners so we started hosting miners in our dorm room um, that started taking off, and then we also got into the blockchain space. So we were doing two things at the same time. But so that, that was my intro. To well, three things because there was drinking as well. That was also drinking. Yeah, three so, things. We're keeping track of the number of things. Yeah. Make a list. Um, so okay, when you were running miners in your dorm room, did you ever have like a power surge? Did people like ever come to you? You know, I, I just imagine. I mean, I just imagine that being like not quite the same level of attention grabbing as like a college student who's like cooking meth in his dorm room or something like that. But I imagine people found out. Right. I mean, so it was hot and noisy. <laughs> <laughs> it was hot and noisy. It was, a, it was literally a sweatshop and it was San Diego. So, you know, the sun comes up and the sun just beats down in the room. We, like, this is, we were just starting. So we had no idea like the, the electrical toll that it was taking. The good thing is, no one knew how much electricity we were consuming because it was distributed through the whole building. Oh, nice. So we were the kind perfect of... Crime. <laughs> yeah, the perfect crime. So, I mean, I think they were... they were. We, we started when it was a holiday. It was Christmas winter break, so December, and no one was there. So it was cool, and we, we kind of looked out. We didn't know this was a good time to start. And then once people came back to, uh, came back to school... Uh, you know, it was just, we didn't, you, you sometimes see the lights flicker, but that was, that was the extent of it. No major power outages. But eventually we were like, yeah, you know, this, everyone would come, whenever they'd come in, it would just be, just start sweating. We realized we had to start yeah. moving stuff out. That's not a great place to like take hookups back. Or maybe it is, you know, I, I, I'm sure you could make a compelling reason for why that's like a great, op you know, college opportunity to hook up with. Yeah. With is that where running. I do crypto <laughs> <laughs> happen? You bring girl boy, back. it's hot in here. <laughs> <laughs> is that a mining rig or just happy oh to my, see me? Oh my God. Uh, so, okay. Can we, let, can we get into the specifics of block party? You know, I, I know... I know what I know from knowing you. Um, I don't know anything from Rakesh. Right. And I think that our listeners deserve to know what Block Party is now that we've been talking about it. Can you tell us as one of the, or, you know, are you a, a founder of Block, one of the founders of Block Party? Right. So, so. Uh, yeah, Shiv, Shiv and I are co-founders. Shiv's okay. the CEO. Um, I, I don't know. Should, do you, Vlad, do you, Vlad's the spokesperson. He's, you know, <laughs> he, so he, he says it in a more concise manner than we can go. Into There's nothing before. concise about anything that I do. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but, but it, it's bad pod because I was basically hired to be the face of the company. And well, you can't see this face. The voice of the company. Via, via yeah, pod. you got to do voiceovers. Look, in, um, in a, in a nutshell, we are striving to disrupt the event ticketing space by using, the blockchain and the way we use blockchain is we convert instead of tickets we do we leverage smart contracts mm -hmm. so every event ticket is in itself a smart contract which uh the use case there is perfect provenance of ticket transfers and all the implications that carries with secondary ticket sales for both the event organizer and the fan uh, we can get into why that's important but if you can track every single time a ticket changes hands 
that's a, that's very powerful data information for the event organizer, but it also gives you a lot of price controls because you could build in exactly certain conditions into every ticket transfer by also tying identity onto a blockchain. You are allow you are basically invalid. You're taking away gate fraud because if uh, if a Celtics game, if the Boston Celtics are expecting Will O'Leary to show up to a game, then you know, you will have to prove via your biometrics that you are that person. Okay. So uh, no more multiple scanning of the same barcode. And we also really don't want to keep your biometric or your identity features because all of that is hashed onto a blockchain and we just keep your hash. Uh, besides gate fraud and uh, secondary ticket managing, there is all the operations that happen within an event. And uh, I can go on and on about block party, but what's more interesting for the purpose of our listeners and the podcast and having Rakesh here is I could talk product all day, but Rakesh is the CTO and co-founder and he built the and he built what were the, the foundation of the whole company. So what's more interesting for this purpose is walking us through how ID works on a blockchain. And I actually get this a lot when I'm presenting our company to potential clients. I say, oh, you need your biometrics to get into an event. And the response is, and, and then I follow it up with, but we don't keep your actual biometric data. It's, it's on, you're not, you're not at risk of getting hacked and everybody's data is out there. Like the recent hacks we've heard about in Experian. And they're always like, well, how do you do that? I'm like, oh, no problem. You hash your ID onto a blockchain. Like, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah. So, uh, Rakesh, talk, talk to us about how ID could be safely hashed onto a blockchain, why that's hack-proof. Right. So, um, basically, I mean, we the, the concept was at this point in time, everyone's using their fingerprint, facial recall. Everyone's taking pictures, snap, Snapchats, you know everything's everywhere. So if in the generation that's going to festivals and all that kind of stuff, they don't care. So normally, initially, if we were talking about this five years ago, people would be like, who wants to put their fingerprint on an application right. or their facial recog on an application? But that's not the argument anymore. Now it's more security of that, of that information. What we do in our application is you do your, you take facial recog, you know, you take the, however many points we take for, for the, for the image capture and we convert that into JSON object. Same thing with your fingerprint. We convert that into you know its, its respective data structure, and then we convert that into a uh, a hash. So 256 hash, and literally that's your digital fingerprint. It's a one-way hash. A hash is basically for those of us who don't do computer science or you know all that kind of stuff. It's a one-way function. Well, I guess breaking that down even further is. It's a function that can't be, you, you go from point A to point B, but you, and you can always make sure that A leads to B, but you can't go back from B mm -hmm. to A. So this way, people can have your digital fingerprint and, and see it on the blockchain and it's recorded there and everyone knows that that's it and that's your digital identity. But no one can say, this, uh, this hash belongs to Vlad or this hash belongs right. to this person. So, so effectively going the opposite direction is de-identified. Exactly. Okay, that makes sense. So a question I have for you on that point, could, could, so, you know, once it gets there, it's immutable. Like, you, you can't, you can't, like, re-engineer Vlad's, you know, Vlad's fingerprint or face uh, on, on, you know, on Block Party's blockchain. But um, what I am curious about, could fraudulent data conceivably still be entered, you know, like could Vlad's wife, who may, may very well happen to be my cousin, you know, conceivably enter her fingerprint on Vlad's identity from the from the get go, and then all of a sudden you've got a fraudulent identity. Is well, that is that a risk? I guess that that is possible. You know, so Vlad's wife uh, could be who happens using, to be my cousin. Who happens to be your cousin could be using <laughs> and my wife <laughs> could be using her fingerprint under Vlad's name. That's yep. possible, but the thing is, there's a disincentive for that because, well. Once that's done, there's no way for her to detach her fingerprint from Vlad's identity. And now when, when it comes to, so we go further, oh. you know, so, so we have all these, you know, we have all these features on an application, you know, you get a reward for update, you know, putting, we, we try to make sure that people don't have to enter their data. Yep. You know, we don't want to store, well, we don't want people to not have ownership of that data. Yep. And therefore we give you rewards 
in order for when you up upload your data. For example, if you put your license, you know, we give you rewards. That way we can verify your age, but you get paid for that essentially. So yeah. you, you have ownership and you can control how it's get, how it gets used, where it gets used. Paid and for that within our system. Within our system. Yeah, cool. Exactly, within our system, um, with our uh, crypto uh, blocks. Now, so there, there's all that incentive that's around it when it comes to you coming to a concert and if Vlad's wife is using her fingerprint and then Vlad's license number comes up or, you know, it, it just messes right. it up. So you well, well, then but I think that means that if she were to, to put it to layman's terms, if she ever then wanted to go to a concert as not me right she could never do that you, because you she would have try to, live, to get in as vlad's wife you have to then, go method with the with like the lie where, yeah. where she has to she has to cut her hair she has to grow a beard she has to look like you all the time or otherwise yeah. she's yeah. not getting to any block party events you have to get you have to go full john malkovich because if she because <laughs> if, if if you try to commit fraud in this way what the way that your hash is going to work is now you have to be that person every time that you yeah. try to go to any event yeah. and um so the there's almost while the while I think what Rakesh is saying is that fraud is hypothetically possible, it is a dead end. Right, right. It's not it's not necessarily like a high upside endeavor for the the fraudster. It's um, it's the same way in which when we say that we give the performer or the event organizer a lot more control over the secondary sale of our tickets, we say okay, well if you don't want if um, a certain artist doesn't want their ticket to then go on to StubHub for five times the price, yeah. they can enter into the smart contract a condition that this ticket may not, any subsequent sale of this ticket may not be more than 20% from the initial sale. And then I once out of every 10 pitches, I'll get some smart ass being like, yeah, but what if you, what if somebody sells their ticket plus 20%, but then wants another $100 in cash at the transaction? Yeah. Well, yeah, there's always going to be a way to game the system. Yeah, 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 but, of course. But by making, a, by making a technology operate in such a way that it makes gaming the system just so high calorie burning and so low reward, then go do something else. It's like trying to hack the Bitcoin network. Like, right. yes, you could probably hack the Bitcoin network and create fraudulent transactions and blocks, but you'd have to spend so much money in, in taking over 51% of mining machines that just like take that same money, hire BlackRock or whatever, and go break into like a national bank vault. Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, like, I, you know, I, I ask these questions because um, of that article that was circulated about like all the reasons that blockchain and crypto are like bad technologies. You know, the, I think the one that, uh, that you wrote a little bit of a response to this week. And it was, you know, frankly, I thought it was a, a well thought out piece. Um, but one of the things that the guy was talking about was like, hey, you know, uh, this use case that like everyone touts that um, aid was delivered by the UN on, you know, as recorded on the Ethereum blockchain, like to make sure it got to the right place. It's like, yeah, but if you're delivering it to a country where it's like there's rampant corruption, like fraudulent information can be coded onto the blockchain and say it was received by the right people and it's going to all the right places. But like, no, like real stuff has to happen in the real world. That's, you know, that's the only reason I'm asking these questions. And, and you're right. I, I think that it sounds like Block Party has done a good job of making it a low incentive endeavor because it's just so impractical to want to fake that in in anything other than like a one-off case, which is like, okay, you know, someone snuck into the Super Bowl. Like, don't, you know, beat yourselves up over it. You know what I mean? So um, as much as I should not be steering away from Block Party as, you know, a, a spokesperson of Block Party, I do want to get into technology that Rakesh has developed that um, is seeing a real-world use case now and... Um, and correct me if I'm wrong on that, but this kind of goes back to you and your time in San Diego and energy, and you developed a blockchain for a company that would, that is usable in the energy trading business. So uh, can you give some color to that as well? Because that's another area in which I think blockchain has a great use case. Right. Yeah, for sure. So well, you know, being being in the startup where uh, we were basically the, the idea of the startup was 
to bring in the commercial sector uh, beyond residential to allow financing for you know the commercial buildings, which is hard to do because there's so many stakeholders in place. You have to convince the land, at least you know the leasing agent. You have to get financing, all this kind of stuff. It is a multi-million dollar deals. Um, but in the end, you know, we, we were coming across projects like apartment buildings, and we were trying to convince the apartment building owner to put solar on their roofs, which would save the energy, you know, which would solve the energy costs for the apartment as a whole. But the issue was the apartment building owner would only pay energy for the lobby and residents would be paying energy for their actual apartments. Mm -hmm. So there was no incentive for the apartment building owners to actually put solar on the roofs because there was no financial stake there. No gain. No gain. So that I mean that I mean uh, the company's doing fine right now but I realized in order to really get solar and clean energy and battery storage to scale at a national level such that you're able to replace big energy providers and s truly replace non-renewable resources you have to get scale and and the people who are you know stakeholders and this is decentralization is is the key here which is every resident produces energy but the thing is you know every residential household so single buildings right um, now let's say you know sometimes the weather's not good in in one neighborhood whereas the weather's good in another neighborhood in, in another city you know there's variations you know sometimes there's a great sun sunrise there's a great sun exposure uh, on one day and and not so much on the other day so the balance you know kind of gets solved by battery storage uh, if if each house owns their own battery but it's that technology isn't really set in a great way yet you know it's, it's not advanced significantly enough people are expecting it with tesla and all that but yeah still not there um well maybe it is i'm out of the industry so for a year <laughs> so things change fast um but basically if you're able to do community battery storage solutions and have neighborhoods produce energy contribute to that central battery storage and have some sort of token economics whereby you're able to guarantee delivery of energy from neighborhood to neighborhood. One neighborhood has a surplus one day, another neighborhood has a surplus another day. You know, some some neighborhoods are in, are, are in deficit of, of uh, energy production. You're now able to trade energy between um, between one neighborhood and another neighborhood. You're able to trade and, and scale that way with central battery storage solutions using the blockchain and tokens and, and proof of payment and proof of purchase, all that kind of stuff throughout the whole nation even right. even the world if you're able to if, if a company really wants to scale that fast and you know this uh, i still can't talk about who i sold it to but this company you know uh multi-billion dollar crypto company they're partnering with another public company and it's really exciting so the what tech if, what if we promise not to tell <laughs> <laughs> i'm just kidding keep going yeah so so the, the tech is very similar i mean power ledger and grid i don't know what what they've done so far but when yeah. i was in that industry you know i was i was like paying attention to what developments were being made and it, it's similar to what they're doing but we built it before that before i even realized icos were a viable <laughs> solution to right. kind of fund my my the startup um, so I just sold it and they're, you know, they're doing their stuff and I'm really excited to see when they do go public, what they come out with. Yeah. It'll be really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that is really cool. I mean, I, I will admit, I know like little to nothing about the, uh, the energy space, but I, I like the idea of essentially a regional monopoly like Con Edison, just like getting totally screwed exactly i can't help myself i'm like look I, i'm sure there you know there are plenty of good people who work there and i don't want them all to lose their jobs and everything but it's like they have this grip and you're effectively releasing people who need a utility you know we've pretty much agreed at this point that energy is a needed utility to to sort of control their own destiny you know you have a marketplace you know powered by token economics where they can exchange i mean right you know right. my exactly. my capturing this effectively you know what i mean i'm doing the best i can here with with this energy stuff um but i i like that i mean i i think that's a real use case that um, you know, when I when I first got interested in crypto, you know, Vlad was was like trying to hook me on it. And one of the ideas he told me about was Power Ledger. Right. And I, I think it is, it, you know, I don't know how how well they're going to execute on it. But I think the idea is really cool anyway. Right. So, yeah, exactly. You know. So, OK, can we go back to Block Party for a second? Is that cool? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, OK, this is this might just be like the stupidest question I ever ask on on this here Sunset Crypto program. But uh, last fall. I went with a group of my college friends back to school to see a football game. Um, 
Michigan against Michigan State, which is, if you're a Michigan fan like me, like the worst thing ever. We always lose. <laughs> so uh, the the way they did ticketing this year, usually in years past, you can buy like 15, 20 tickets together. You can all you can sit with all your friends. You know, everybody like comes, everybody brings their significant other. It's great. This year, they said you couldn't buy more than like four or maybe five tickets in a in a pack. So that screwed everybody because everybody's kind of on their own, whereas normally we've outsourced the responsibility to one person. So uh, some of us were, you know, I had someone buy tickets for me who like really was on top of their shit. Somebody else waited until the day of the game and decided to try to scalp. You see where this is going. So, uh, you know, the population of Ann Arbor like triples on a rivalry day game like that. And my friends who bought scalp tickets, uh, you know, they went, they basically found someone, you know, they hey mistered it on on the street. And we're like, you know, we're looking for tickets, sell us some tickets. They got paper printed out tickets, not like cut out from, you know, the laminated kinds from the university. They got paper printed out tickets like from someone's home computer from a scalper. An hour later or so, they realized like these are fake. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And went back to the scalper and uh, the scalper was like, okay, okay, come, come with me. Like, I'll get you the real tickets. They were resold to me. Um, pulls them into like an alleyway and it's like, I have a gun. Don't come down here. Like F off essentially. Damn. So yeah. So like, you know, I, I say that not because of you know, the scourge of like violent crime or anything like that. It's more like the, the issue here is I'm curious to know like what, how would block party solve that problem? Can you help me understand? Like, do you do you have to partner with the university in order to solve that problem? Like, We're gonna get guns off the streets. Okay, I I will vote for Block Party in that case. Uh, no, um, I think what you're asking is how do we effectively integrate with, in this case, a university yeah. and the big house, or in other cases with other sports teams directly into their venue, their operations. Or, or like, is there is there a secondary, like a pure secondary market play where you're like you're basically stepping in front of StubHub, you know? it's The answer is yes, uh, and it's it's really both. Uh, when I say that uh, one of our first pillars is secondary, uh, that was my bad. It really, we are a primary ticketing provider as well as a secondary ticketing provider because what we're engineering, and I, I'm not sure to what extent I can really discuss this, but uh, we'll, we'll go and we'll build a secondary for you. So in this case, we would build the, the Wolverine secondary market. Got it. Um, but what you start to do is w- we nip this problem in the bud before you even haymister it. Because uh, what a in, the, in your example, what, the, what Michigan would do is distribute their tickets via block party. Mm-hmm. And those tickets are now smart contracts. So if you did not have a ticket on game day and you were walking around campus and somebody is selling tickets, the way it would work is they take out their phone, you take out your phone, you both open the Block Party app, and that person would initiate a ticket transfer to you. And then your gun comes out? And or? then the gun comes okay, out. Okay, and then right. the gun comes out. Got uh, and then you, the purchaser, would take your phone and receive the tickets. So uh, now, Rakesh, correct me if I'm wrong in any part of this process, but... They, the seller would buy, would use their biometrics to confirm their intent to sell, uh-huh. and you would do the same to indicate your intent to purchase. So at that point, it's out of your hands. Like you, 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 I don't have to. You don't have to even physically hand me the ticket. No, it bumps. It bumps from. It bumps to you. And the smart and the the smart contract ticket. It, first of all, the the gate at the university is now no longer expecting this person. They're expecting you. Right. They're in real time. The event organizer is cognizant that a ticket transfer has been done. That's actually really cool because you have to show student ID to get into the big house. Oh, you can verify your student ID-ness, uh, your, 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 yourself being a student way before any of this even happens. I think I just found a prospect for you guys. You want to make the intro? Right. To, oh, to University oh, of Michigan. Uh, University. So, so that's so that's I'll my introduce s- you to Tom Brady. <laughs> so that's my salesy. Uh, will um, will fix any problem you throw at us, dude. I now, like that. Now, Rakesh, you tell us wh- what I got wrong and how this actually works, uh, and what the blockchain actually how the blockchain actually impacts this whole uh, scenario. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, from from a process perspective, you got it all right, uh, but. Uh, 
you know, the technically each each ticket is a seven twenty one contract, right? And on in our meta, we've we've inscribed your digital fingerprint, and so everyone every time there's a ticket that's already been sold, there's an ownership of it registered on the app, and you know each app each person's application is also technically a wallet, which is where the ticket is housed. That makes sense, right? So now there's you can do a transfer from one wallet to another wallet. It's technically it's the same as transferring Bitcoin from one wallet to another. Well, let's say Ether, you know, because we use, we're on the Ethereum protocol. So right. transferring Ether from one wallet to another wallet, it's as easy as that. Now you can, you know, we are building stuff like uh, an auction house or a secondary marketplace that allows you to actually p- transfer to people you don't know. But, you know, transferring to people that you do know is as easy as sending a Venmo to someone else. You know, you know, your contact list, you can just say, a transfer my ticket to Vlad that you know all that interaction happens on the blockchain in our back end and it's that's it you know and we we, we do the transfer of identity and by that's the way the University of Michigan in this example or any event organizers example in real time sees how many times a ticket is transferring so like we, we've heard from some ticketing execs that have left a giant behemoth ticketing company that everybody knows about oh yeah which one Go on. they talk about hey behind every sole ticket uh, behind every um, ticket, there are two or three buyers we didn't see. Yeah. So I think the being able to have such um, analytics regarding the the amount of times one ticket gets transacted and and who's transacting it. Are students? Hey, are students flipping their tickets? And are we getting people in the stadium that aren't here for Michigan football? Yeah. Um, are people? Uh, you know, there there are a lot of little like quandaries that get solved. And uh, we can go on and on about forever. But for right now, we're going to close the books on this episode of Sunset Crypto. Rakesh, thank you so much for coming on, being a guest, and uh, talking crypto with us. We got 10% smarter today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you, man. Great interview. Really appreciate it.